Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast includes discussions about sexism and related topics. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, why do we devalue femininity? When I say the word femininity, what comes to mind? What words would you use to describe femininity? Things like pink, soft, maybe a person in need of protection? As a person assigned female at birth, I have identified as female since I understood what gender was, and I have identified as feminist since elementary school. But it wasn't until the last six or seven years that I started to understand many of my feminist beliefs came from a rejection of things I saw as feminine, and explicitly defining myself as not feminine. Part of this realization happened after learning about a concept called femphobia, something I was introduced to by my guest today, Dr. Rhea Ashley Hoskin. Femphobia is the devaluation and regulation of femininity. I understood the regulation of femininity part, so girls and women are expected to behave certain ways to be deemed acceptable, and men and boys are never supposed to engage in any feminine behaviors or have any feminine interests. This was the stuff I pushed back against, hard. But I didn't clue in that my own rejection of femininity was at the root of my feminism. I saw femininity and things associated with it as weakness, and I wanted nothing to do with being weak. I was a strong feminist, damn it. On this episode of Do We Know Things, I'll examine why I was so wrong and interview fem scholar Dr. Rhea Ashley Hoskin, who explains why we reject and police femininity, why it harms us, and why we need to push back against anti-femininity bias. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first, before I get to my interview, I wanted to take you through my journey to understanding these concepts as a feminist. This is my story, but you might recognize some of your own experiences. I want to note that I'll be presenting a very basic understanding of feminism from my early years. Feminist movements have evolved a lot over the past two decades to become more nuanced and intersectional. And what I'm presenting here are my understandings as a kid, teen, and early 20-something. My childhood feminism was highly informed by Free to Be You and Me, a cassette tape that my family played endlessly in the car. Free to Be You and Me was recorded in the 70s and was a progressive message during the not-so-progressive 70s and 80s. This early messaging was a lot about equality of the sexes, framed as boys and girls and men and women should not be subject to arbitrary gendered rules, that anyone can be anything and do anything. We are all the same. Free to Be You and Me included such hits as William Wants a Doll and It's All Right to Cry, both of which challenged masculine stereotypes. It also included Ladies First, in which a girl who always cries, Ladies First, is the first to get eaten by a tiger. My personal favorite is Housework, which teaches media literacy, i.e. don't believe commercials. But I'll tell you one thing I know is true. 
the lady we see when we're watching TV, the lady who smiles as she scours or scrubs or rubs or washes or wipes or mops or dusts or cleans, or whatever she does on our TV screens, that lady is smiling because she's an actress and she's earning money for learning those speeches. And definitely taught me the importance of hating housework, a belief I still hold firmly today. So, the very next time you happen to be just sitting there quietly watching TV and you see some nice lady who smiles as she scours or scrubs or rubs or washes or wipes or mops or dusts or cleans, remember, nobody smiles doing housework but those ladies you see on TV. Your mommy hates housework. Your daddy hates housework. I hate housework, too. And when you grow up, so will you. In grade six, for our Greek mythology unit, we had to write a myth. I don't remember the specific details, but my myth was about gods coming to Earth and somehow learning a lesson that there was no such thing as, quote, men's work and women's work. And then everyone started sharing work equally. Zeus mopped the floors, therefore feminism, at least to my sixth-grade brain. The finished product was a laminated, illustrated, coil-bound book, and I dedicated it to my aunt, Vicky, who had given me the Free to Be You and Me cassette tape, and to Nellie McClung, who was probably the only famous feminist I'd ever heard of as an 11-year-old. A Canadian Heritage Minute about her came out when I was 11, so I guess that's where I learned about her. I'll link to it in the show notes. For those not familiar with Canadian politics, Nellie McClung was a suffragist in the early 1900s who was involved in getting some women the vote and in the persons case that got some Canadian women recognized as persons under the law. Of course, like many early white feminists, she was a racist, an elitist, and a eugenicist. This was not discussed in elementary school. From at least grade five, I was aware that boy things were inherently better than girl things. I knew I would be perceived as cooler if I played hockey with the boys than when I choreographed Paula Abdul dances with the girls. What I was taught, implicitly and explicitly, was that behaviors and interests seen as masculine were better, and behaviors and interests seen as feminine were seen as unimportant and even worthy of mockery. As I moved into high school, the anti-femininity messaging was even stronger. I hated the idea that there was anything women couldn't do or ways women shouldn't behave. As a teen, it became my mission to show that I was just as competent as the boys. To do that, I had to reject femininity. I was never overly feminine, but I definitely wasn't a tomboy either. My main issue was that I wanted to be seen and treated like a person, not like a girl. I didn't want to be assumed incompetent. I didn't want to be objectified. I didn't want to be seen as silly and frivolous. I just wanted to be a person. And somehow that translated into rejecting all things associated with girliness. In my late teens, I spent most of my time hanging out with a group of guys, and I insisted that they treat me like a boy and even refer to me as a boy. In my high school yearbook for grade 12, their gift to me was all referring to me as a boy in their comments, which was truly the greatest gift anyone had ever given me. I finally felt legitimized as a not girl. Except I was a girl. When I talk about my experiences of wanting to be the cool girl in Psych of Gender now, it always resonates with some of the students. 
My message now, though, is if anyone tells you you are cool because you are not like other girls, run. It is not a compliment. That person hates women. I didn't want to be seen as a girl because girls were ridiculous. If I had to be a girl, I would make it very clear that I was a different kind of girl. I was a cool girl, not like those other uncool girls with all their feelings and their makeup. Some feminist I was. But this is not uncommon in feminist circles. Femininity is not to be trusted because it's for the male gaze. Of course, queer femmes challenge the femininity equals male attention trope all the time. But I hadn't fully registered that yet. In fact, the first time a femme friend invited me to a femme event, I was kind of insulted. I didn't identify with femme at all. I couldn't imagine I would have anything in common with a group of people who embraced femininity. Looking back, I am both amused and embarrassed by my ignorance. I truly saw femininity as weakness and as something to be hidden, not celebrated. The invitation to this femme event and subsequent discussions were the beginning of unlearning my own anti-femininity bias, which was accelerated by my exposure to the research of my guest today, Dr. Rhea Ashley Hoskin. Dr. Hoskin recently won the Governor General's Academic Gold Medal for her dissertation on femme theory and has published many academic papers and collections. She's a recent PhD, but is already a rock star. Here's my conversation with Dr. Hoskin. Welcome to Do We Know Things. To start off, can you tell the listeners about yourself and your work? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an AMTD Global Talent Postdoctoral Fellow and an Ontario Women's Health Scholar at the University of Waterloo. I earned my PhD in sociology from Queen's University. And in my work, I focus on femininity, specifically how femininity is devalued and regulated. And through my work, I also try to dispel what you might call the myths of femininity. That's so fascinating. So can we start with a basic question? What is femininity? Yeah, of course. Actually, of all the questions I'm asked about femme, femphobia, and femininity, I think the simple question of what is femininity is probably the hardest. The answer itself changes based on context, history, person, embodiment, and more. So, for example, many of the things that we currently think of as being quintessentially feminine, like wigs, high heels, makeup, or even the color pink, were actually at one point considered a masculine signifier or symbolic of power and prestige. For a lot of these examples, they only became feminine as women adopted them in an effort to accumulate the symbols of power, which I think is a really good example of how this shifting goalpost keeps women out of the realm of power and how femphobia and sexism work together to achieve this goal under patriarchy. And of course, femininity does have this long history of being used to oppress women through its rigid enforcement and policing in ways that kept women in line. So in a way, nothing is actually feminine. Femininity is constructed and things and people are made to be feminine through their association with the subordinate sex. So in terms of like these things becoming female associated women were like, okay, I want to be taken more seriously in this patriarchal world. I'll wear heels like the men. And then as more women did this, it was seen as feminine and no longer associated with high status and power because women things are devalued. Is that sort of what you're getting at? 
Yeah, exactly. For a number of things we now consider feminine, that's kind of been the process. And so given this history, this process, many people see femininity and womanly as being synonymous or might define femininity as the state of being womanly or having womanly characteristics. But I think a lot of feminist scholarship in fem studies pushes us to think more deeply and critically about using femininity in this way, because femininity doesn't mean woman or vice versa. Femininity is a set of characteristics, behaviors, traits, labor, and so forth that have historically been associated with women, which is why many people, including trans theorist Julie Serrano, defines femininity as the behaviors, mannerisms, interests, and ways of presenting oneself that are typically associated with those who are female. But of course, at the same time, most feminists and gender theorists, including Serrano, push back against the continued connection between femininity and woman. Women are, of course, not naturally more feminine. They can be masculine, androgynous, or feminine. So what are we left with to define femininity? The history, the tension, and all of the complexity surrounding woman and femininity has led me to define femininity in terms of its relationship to the gender binary. I actually had this one participant explain femininity as the aesthetic of subordination, which I think is a really interesting place to begin the definition. So if I had to define femininity, to get back to your question, <laughs> I would define it as a subordinated category of gendered behaviors, characteristics, mannerisms, and aesthetics, whatever those may be at any given place or time. And of course, they are made subordinate and are not actually inferior. Right. That's fascinating. Thank you for that very thorough tour of femininity. Um, in your writing about femme theory, you emphasize the importance of femme stories. Can you share your story of coming to understand femme? Yeah, there were so many points in my life that contributed to my understanding and identification as femme that I'm never really quite sure where to begin. As far back as I can remember, I've always loved femininity. As I grew into a teenager, I became increasingly aware of how my own understanding of femininity differed from those around me. It almost seemed as though my puberty marked a distinction where my femininity would never again be seen as my own. Prior to puberty, I could express myself wildly and boldly and creatively, and no one took it to mean anything other than me being an eccentric child. Post-puberty, though, meant that I was looking for attention, particularly boys' attention, which of course couldn't be further from the truth. I think this is one of the many ways that girls' bodies are symbolically taken away from them and turned into the property of men. Yes, like any expression of femininity or wearing fitted clothes or any showing of the body is assumed to be, quote, for men. Yeah, exactly. And we tend to make that assumption about expressions of femininity being for men, whether it's expressed by men, women, or non-binary people. I also knew fairly early on that I didn't really like boys, but because I was so feminine and was really kind of attracted to all things feminine, I didn't realize that I could like girls. And so it was entirely my femininity that made coming out hard and confusing. Not because of my family, not because of homophobia or that of my friends, my femininity felt at odds with even the possibility of being a lesbian. And of course, this limited understanding of femininity and queerness was reflected in a lot of the feminist scholarship I was exposed to as a women's studies major. 
Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, of course. Uh, one example that I tend to give is this time I was sitting in my Intro to Women and Gender Studies class during my undergrad with my Bush partner beside me. The professor outlined this assortment of feminine beauty practices that women apparently do, posed the rhetorical question of why we do them, and then flat out stated for men. Not only did this assume the entire class was made up of cisgender and heterosexual women, it also created this very reductive and simplistic version of femininity that was just completely devoid of intersectionality and also completely erased the possibility of femmes. Experiences like this in my undergrad paired with what felt like the simultaneous glorification of masculinity in feminist spaces made me feel completely erased and excluded from feminist theory and feminism itself. Then I found Brazen Femme by Chloe Brushwood Rose and Anna Camilleri, and then Femmes of Power by Eureka Dahl and Del Lagrasse Volcano. And these texts really helped me to understand myself, but also the world around me. And I think Femme stories have done that for a lot of people, which highlights one of the many reasons why Femme life writings are so important. These experiences of exclusion and then feeling like I had finally found my home in femme stories really crystallized my academic goal of bringing femme into feminist conversations and to look more complexly at femininity. Femme stories are really the lifeblood of femme theory. And I think that they offer a missing piece of the puzzle in terms of how femininity is talked about. For example, many scholars discuss elements of femininity in their work but completely overlook the experiences of femme and as a result, reinforce some of these myths of femininity. Femme stories really challenge these myths. Can you give some examples of myths of femininity? Yeah, absolutely. Some myths of femininity are that femme, like femininity more broadly, means that someone is in need of protection, that their femininity is done for the male gaze, that femininity is weak, dumb, anti-feminist, inherently about being a woman, and that femininity is a set of behaviors, traits, aesthetics, belonging solely to white, cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied women. I think another myth that's important to debunk is that femininity isn't exclusively a tool of women's subjugation under patriarchy. There's so much to be gained by recognizing the value of femininity. Femininity can be important, powerful, and empowered and personally, I think that femininity contains the seeds for growing the world many of us want to live in. And on that note, I think femme perspectives and stories are uniquely equipped to help debunk these myths, challenge our perspectives on femininity, and to really challenge the status quo of femphobia. Because femphobia is so deeply entrenched and normalized, even within the LGBTQ community, femme perspectives and experiences can help make visible what's otherwise just tainted for granted as the norm. So we're talking a lot about femphobia. How do you define femphobia? In my work, I define femphobia as a systemic way that society and people devalue and regulate femininity. So to break that down a bit, there are various social norms and processes that lead us to disqualify femininity by either viewing it as inferior, but also leading us to tightly regulate femininity. And that's femphobia. There are tight constraints around femininity, and femphobia plays a role in upholding this narrowly defined version of femininity. You know, the rules that say femininity should be straight, white, cisgender, able-bodied, thin, and so on. But even when femininity ticks all of these boxes and is seen as quote-unquote acceptable, it's rarely valued other than for being an object for men. And of course, dehumanization is not valorization. Yeah. 
In defining femphobia, I think it's important to also note that femphobia is separate but sometimes overlapping with sexism and misogyny. As we kind of talked about, the concepts of femininity and woman have a complex relationship in history, and so do sexism and femphobia. But gender expression is separate from gender identity or sex assigned at birth. And it's this separate entity of femininity that I look at in my work on femphobia. So when I think about this, I think about when I was growing up and I was definitely socialized that girl things were bad and boy things were cool. And in particular, I saw things associated with femininity, for example, crying as weakness. Is this common? And how do we push back against this narrative? I think there's a lot of pressure for people to mask up or man up or buck up or butch it up or or some other saying that in one way or another encourages people to turn away from femininity. At the same time that we're endorsing masculinity, we use feminine terms as insults, position femininity as weak, trivial, and superficial. I think the discourses that encourage masculinity and discourage femininity are so second nature that they almost go unnoticed. Like, for instance, it goes without question that a woman wearing a lot of makeup um, is a bimbo who has low self-esteem and wants men's attention. Um, this is, again, why femme stories are so important, because they illuminate all of these assumptions that we're making about femininity. And these assumptions do have real-life consequences, ranging from homophobia and transphobic hate crimes to rape culture and even issues of job equity. Uh, for example, to be taken seriously, to be seen as intelligent, to get the job, women are told that they essentially have to adopt masculine traits while simultaneously tempering those masculine traits with femininity, which is obviously an impossible and exhausting balancing act. Yes, we talk about this all the time in my psych of gender class related to the work world. And the women in the class get mad when they start thinking about all of these challenges and demands that are going to be unique to them. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely infuriating. And when I hear some of the recommendations made to women that in short suggest they mask up, I think to myself, well, ultimately, what kind of a world are we trying to build or am I trying to build? One based on communication, nurturance, communality, and collaboration, or one based on domination, stoicism, and the perception of independence that's typically really built off the backs of invisible feminine labor. Take, for example, feminized speech patterns like vocal fry or upspeak. These speech patterns are mocked and trivialized and warned against by most feminist books tackling sexism in the workplace. But that upward inflection, as though someone is posing a question, that speech pattern is actually inviting the other person into the conversation. And I see that as generative. I see that as a sign of being communicative, collaborating, open to hearing from multiple perspectives. And not only does that make for richer research and a better work environment, it's much more in line with the world that feminists are trying to build. Yes, absolutely. And even in terms of men, in my class, we talk about a study that found higher level managers, mostly men, who use more uptalk in their meetings are more respected and well-liked because they're seen as inviting the other person into the conversation. But when lower status people and women often uh, use uptalk, they're looked down upon. That's a great example. And I think it really shows how femphobia and sexism work together to uphold patriarchal structures. 
Yeah. And I think the traits that a patriarchal worldview associates with weakness, like showing vulnerable emotions, caring about what other people think, being nurturing, etc., are not weakness at all. It's really just a fear of being vulnerable or as not being seen as masculine. There's nothing about these so-called, quote, feminine things that are weak. It's just that they're positioned as not masculine and therefore bad. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I've seen this coming out of a lot of femme scholarship and even uh, from femme online communities. Like initially a common femme slogan was femme ain't frail. And now there's a recognition in terms of how this rejection of frail can actually uphold femme phobia. But I think that both approaches are actually really important. So rejecting femininity is weak and rejecting weak is bad. I think that neither approach on its own can really adequately tackle issues of femphobia. So I think that at the same time that we reconsider femininity as being weak and push back against femininity meaning weakness, we also need to look at the qualities we perceive as weak and think about how those have value too. So femininity doesn't mean weak, and at the same time, the qualities society has constructed as being weak aren't bad. In fact, they can be great. I really love the work of Andy Schwartz, Jocelyn Scott, and Adam Davies for helping us to value softer qualities like vulnerability, emotionality, relationality, or nurturance. Another example could be how many people see crying as feminine. Some might push back against emotionality and crying being categorized as feminine, which of course is important, but at the same time, it's important to recognize that crying and emotionality aren't bad in the first place. We don't need to purge them from our category of feminine to find strength and femininity. I think we need to carefully consider the traits we're attempting to distance from the categorization of feminine because we run the risk of upholding the very thing that we're trying to challenge. Yeah, it's so complicated. <laughs> How else does femphobia show up in our daily lives? I think femphobia shows up virtually everywhere in the workplace and pop culture and the media and politics, sports and woven through gender based violence. I think femphobia even plays a huge driving force behind toxic masculinity. So, for example, femphobia in our daily lives looks like a man who is made fun of by his fellow construction workers for bringing a salad to work. Or when we casually remark that a woman doesn't look gay or that she does look gay. Or when we see posts on social media that use femininity to mock political leaders, we find detestable by, say, putting makeup on them. Anywhere that we can see the rules of femininity subtly or violently enforced, or femininity being used to denote or infer inferiority, I think that's at least in part femphobia at play. Yeah. And how does femphobia show up in queer spaces and relationships specifically? Looking specifically at queer contexts, I think femphobia shows up in two key ways. So authenticity and desirability. In terms of authenticity, I think femphobia presents itself as questioning whether someone is, for example, really bisexual or lesbian, or does she really just want men's attention? Or questioning if someone is actually non-binary, because we tend to have this idea that non-binary or gender neutrality is actually masculine. Feminine non-binary people are assumed to be fake, or again, just after attention. And of course, people accuse feminine men, both cis or trans, of not being quote-unquote real men. And then there's how feminine feminists are seen as frauds. So in each of these examples, the femininity of the person is used to disqualify them from being seen as authentically who they claim to be. 
Super feminine people are also often seen as generally fake, which maps almost perfectly onto these allegations of authenticity. We can also see femphobia surface in terms of desirability. For instance, the now infamous grinder tagline, no fads, no femmes, no Asians, exemplifies the privileging of masculinity within gay men's communities. Similarly, feminine queer women often describe struggling to be seen as desirable compared to masculine women. Really, within queer communities, masculinity is almost this prized currency that's seen as both desirable and authentic. So here on the Do We Know Things podcast, the focus is usually on things that are misunderstood about a sex-related topic, or in this case, a gender-related topic. And I think you've busted a whole bunch of myths about femininity and our ideas about it today. Are there any other things about feminists or femininity that people have misconceptions about that you want to address? Yeah, so I've been thinking more and more about gender and power, and specifically what feminine power structures would look like. So I think the last thing I'd like to address is our approach to power, which as a society really only operates within a masculinist framework. But what does feminine power look like? What would the world look like, feel like, or be like if we operated with a feminine coded power structure as the most valuable form of power? And then maybe just leaving the the listener to think about how we might try to celebrate rather than discourage those types of power in ourselves and others. Thank you so much for being here, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. Wow. The ending of that interview gave me goosebumps. There's just so much to think about from that conversation. I love how Dr. Hoskin breaks down why we devalue femininity and that she's bringing femme theory into academic work, which is traditionally so masculine. She is truly a groundbreaking scholar. I hope you've had some epiphanies while listening to this, as I have over the years listening to her speak and reading her research. Her work on femphobia has truly shaped who I am as a feminist and shifted my understanding of femininity. This includes big things like relearning what it means to be a feminist and small things like intentionally wearing a feminine dress for my professional photos at work. It was my little act of resistance to include femininity in this professional space, to be like, look, I can be feminine and be taken seriously as a professor. Author and researcher Brené Brown has also helped me understand feminine things like feelings and vulnerability. Since 2015, I've learned how to feel feelings. Emotions aren't feminine per se, but I had suppressed mine for so long because I saw them as weak. Now I feel the opposite. Feel all the feels. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Do We Know Things, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.